Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Welcome to another episode in the Rusk Rehabilitation podcast series at NYU Langone Health. These interviews make it possible to learn about developments in the field of rehabilitation aimed at improving the lives of patients. I am honored to have as today's guest, Dr. John Ross Rizzo, a physician scientist at NYU Langone Health. Podcast listeners have an opportunity to hear many interviews with exceptionally knowledgeable and interesting participants. Each segment is in the 15 to 20 minute range, apart from the introduction of speakers. Occasionally, a pair of longer recordings is featured by individuals who participated in Grand Rounds presentations at the Rusk Institute of Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Health. This podcast by Dr. Rizzo is on the topic of a rehabilitation reset, new frontiers to expand our scope. His presentation occurred at a Grand Round session at Rusk on September 12, 2019. Dr. Rizzo is an assistant professor serving as the Director of Innovation and Technology and Research on an interim basis for the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation with cross-appointments in the Department of Neurology, the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering, and the Department of Biomedical Engineering at the NYU Tandon School of Engineering. He leads the Visual Motor Integration Laboratory, where his team focuses on eye-hand coordination as it relates to acquired brain injury, and the Rehabilitation Engineering Alliance and Center Transforming Low Vision Laboratory, where his team focuses on advanced wearables for the sensory deprived and benefits from his own personal experiences with vision loss. In part one of his presentation, Dr. Rizzo stated that as rehabilitation clinicians, we live at the juncture of structure and function. His remarks in the two segments centered around various stories. In part two of his presentation, Dr. Rizzo began by indicating that work is being performed involving both traumatic brain injury and concussion. I really thank all those who are here and also joining us telephonically. I really do consider myself a a product of, uh, you know, the the, the Rusk ecosystem. And, you know, so many of uh, you here have helped shape me. And uh, I really thank you um, for all of your contributions uh, uh, to the pedigree. Um, It's been uh, a really fun ride, and I'm really excited for the future. So, um, you know, it's kind of fun when you're handed a blank slate and said you can kind of talk about really anything you want to. Um, So I thought long and hard, it it took some time to come up with perhaps a theme and a couple of stories. So I thought we'd kind of weave our way through a bit of a narrative about some of our research findings and also some new perspectives and um, thematically organize them. So we've entitled this a Rehabilitation Reset and New Frontiers uh, to Expand Our Scope. And just for those in the room, this screen is a little bit pixelated, so I'll try and ping pong between the two. But, you know, let me know if anything's unclear and I'll try and pause for some interaction (laughs) along the way. 
So, as, as rehabilitation clinicians, you know, we live at the intersection between structure uh, and function. Uh, and many of us spend uh, a lot of our time at the performance pyramid, whether it be function or balance, strength, endurance, sometimes looking into control and correcting deviations, or oftentimes to try and decrease pain. If we dig it a little bit more deeply and we think a little bit about exercise physiology and the body's responses to physical activity, we have a lot of complexity. As it relates to, as it relates to perhaps cardiopulmonary rehabilitation, we're used to terms like aerobic fitness and VO2 max, anaerobic capacity. But as it relates to our entire breath in terms of rehabilitation scope, I don't know if we're using as many of, the, of, of these terms. And a couple of terms that I'm extremely fascinated by um, are exercise economy and coordination. So I want to zoom in on a few, of, um, a few of these terms. But before we get there, let's take a little uh, digression and go back to physics from either high school or <laughs> or college, and go into um, some, uh, some, some basic definitions. So energy, power, and work. Who uses these as rehabilitation clinicians in daily practice? Anyone in the room? I don't know if Owen Kieran is joining us on the phone, but I remember distinctly in 2007 on my medical student rotations, Owen Kieran asking us in Bellevue Clinic on hot afternoons whether or not we thought about power implications for patients with different impairments or work and what that meant. So if you look at some of these basic definitions from physics, energy, the capacity to do work, do we think about that? Power, the rate at which we're doing work, or force, a work causing a displacement, and we can look at this, this young boy or adolescent kind of lifting this box and this movement displacement with that lifting force, okay? And we can get into specifics about you know, terms that are used or how we actually put labels on some of these um, you know, specific definitions. But let's go back to economy, that term that I found particularly fascinating. So economy, by definition, the minimal amount of energy or effort required to maintain movement, or dare I say, maybe complete a task. The ability to transfer energy into movement. If two people running at the same speed, one of them could be using less energy than the other because they're more economic. Has anyone in the room thought about this as a, as a rehabilitation clinician? So here's a really interesting slide that I found in a paper on the ecology of exercise. Um, and you know, it may seem a bit strange, but if we actually look at it, it's at the intersection between human exercise and different bird species, and what actually happened if we look at time scale, okay? So we can see the way different bird species, we can aggregate them in, ter in terms of predator species or migration species or foraging species, and we can look at human exercise in terms of different types of exercise. We can look at the time scale of those exercises. Sprinting or middle distance runners or marathon runners. Now, what was very interesting about this and, this, and the reason I was pulling this in, is they brought up something called additional physiological costs at the bottom. And here you can see what they have arrows going by and back and forth bidirectionally over this human exercise in terms of what ends, what ends up happening with these different types of exercise. So you can see what happens here in depletion of anaerobic fuel happening in certain situations with sprinting or constrained aerobic scope. So I think in general, and I, I, I ask us, in certain pathologic settings, and I can remember distinctly in training, we talked about some of these considerations as it relates to amputees, but do we really use these definitions across our entire scope? I'm not entirely sure. And if we take it to the next level, what do we think about net efficiency? So what do we think about work output over the energy expended above rest? Usually expre expressed as a percentage. So this is the ratio of work performed or that output divided by the energy expenditure above rest, expressed as a percentage. 
So this, is, this decreases as the exercise work rate increases. Now these relationships are often curvilinear. Now here's where it gets really interesting. So in a lot of times we think more is often better, right? If we add more speed, perhaps we're doing better, but that's not what happens in terms of reaching optimality. So if we go back to famous Mark Twain, Mark Twain often says, too much of anything is bad, but too much good whiskey is barely enough, right? <laughs> so we have to think about these things. And when it relates to exercise, if I actually increase the speed of movement, if I'm on a pedal ergometer, my net efficiency actually starts to plummet when I go too fast. So this is important when we're actually thinking, we may be able to start restoring motor ability. And as we're doing that and regaining function to a certain extent, we may be able to, able to start to regain function, but perhaps my efficiency is not there. Are we economic about how we're approaching these things? These are things that I think are very important to expand our scope. So we have a little bit of a theme. Now let's start diving into some meat. So story number one, eye-hand coordination. Many of you know that I'm fascinated, and our team has become galvanized around eye-hand coordination. So we love eye-hand coordination for many reasons, and eye-hand coordination is pervasive in rehabilitation, whether we use it in occupational therapy, and you can see here, eye movements, eye movements, eye movements, and eye-hand coordination, whether we're doing different exercises, or we're using it in different types of sports performance. You have a couple different vantage points here kind of demonstrating what would actually happen and what's actually happening during some of these skills. Reaction time training that's often being used um, in, some, in some training centers and training facilities. Um, here's actually a professional athlete that's paying an intense and insane amount of money uh, for actually reaction time training for a rather simple setup, I would argue, um, and I think many would agree. That's okay. I'm sorry? I said that's okay. He's that's willing, okay. Yes, he's willing that's willing to pay it, that's fine. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. So if, if we start thinking about work and economy and eye-hand coordination, what, what are the work requirements? How do we actually get it done, right? What's the amount that has to be put together? How do we actually build this, this eye-hand coordination? Well, Eye movements, and many of you know that we study eye movements, we do a lot of eye tracking in the lab. And some of you have seen me use this slide in, 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 in the past, but eye movements are incredibly voluminous throughout the day. There is a ton of eye work happening every single day. Every second, three or four eye movements. Every minute, 180. Every hour, 11,000 eye movements. Every day, a quarter of a million eye movements. That's a ton of physiology that's happening, right? That's a ton of work. That's a lot of activity to happen. And to have that intersection in terms of multi-effector coordination, Eye-hand coordination, eye-leg coordination, trunk control, it's quite profound. And there are a lot of implications for rehabilitation. So earlier on in the lab, we started asking what ends up happening with eye-hand coordination and how does it end up intersecting with stroke? So I wanted to walk us through a quick example of some of our early pilots on eye-hand co eye coordination and stroke. And so our first pilot investigation was 13, uh, thir 13 stroke subjects with middle cerebral artery infarcts. They were approximately three years out. There was no visual dysfunction, and they had mild motor impairments, as assessed by FMS or uh, Fugelmeyer. And what we did was we assessed them on eye-hand coordination. So we had a computer screen, as you can see in the upper right. We basically fed them targets. They were point-to-point -point reaches. They were only a couple inches large. This was done basically in computer coordinates. So whatever was done on the computer was supposed to be done on a tabletop, a one-to-one -one transformation. And we asked them to reach from basically a start to a stop. It was quite simple. And what we did was we either flashed the target as you can see here in a memory guided condition, or we actually threw up a target and we left it there so they could actually see that visually cue throughout the duration of the actual trial. Now what was really interesting about that, and what were the implications from the work and the, and, and the economy there? What was very, very intriguing here, for one, 
is that, and what we do, let's go back to Mark Twain, the stroke subjects compared to the controls, the controls were tightly coupled, stroke subjects were incredibly fast, really quick reaction times. And they had this massive decoupling between the eye and the hand. They were incoordinated, if you will, okay? And what was happening in this incoordination, meaning their eye and their hands were not working together to do these simple point-to-point -point kind of visually guided reaches, um, was that they were, they, were, they were making a ton of eye movements. So what are the work implications with that? So if we actually look at a histogram or the frequency of eye movements in this actual interval, which you can see highlighted here in red, you can actually see that compared to a control, so this is a bar meaning one eye movement was made in order to get to actually that target. So one eye movement and then a reach, which is, which is normal. In stroke, you ended up having, if I zoom in here, two, three, four, five, six, seven saccades in that decoupling interval for that one reach. So, so if we actually, so before I get to the, uh, the, the spatial analysis, let's take a quick look at some raw traces. So instead of analyzing all this, let me actually just show you incoming data from an eye tracker and a limb tracker. So right below this, you could actually see um, the limb. So if I have a, a quick sen uh, sensor on the finger and I'm able to analyze position, so any vertical deviation is position change. So as you can see, the, the gray dotted line is the actual limb changing position. So I'm starting at my start position and then boom, I change position. Whereas my eye in controls on the upper left-hand side, for those in the room can actually see me, for those telephonically on the upper left-hand side of the raw traces, which is to the right of the actual slide, you can actually see the incoming um, eye movement data coming in as small black dots. And we're getting lots of samples. These eye movements are very fast, so we have to collect a lot of data. So you can see the eye is fixated in, in the start position, and then boom, we make an eye movement that's tightly coupled. And here's um, another example of a control right below that. So you see two examples of controls, one eye movement, one limb movement. Now in the stroke situation, you can see right off the bat, vertical deviations, a lot more activity. The eye is performing a lot more work in order to make that simple point-to-point -point reach, right? So you can actually see eye movement, pause, eye movement, and then they actually um, pause, and then they actually make another eye movement after they're uh, initiating the reach in the upper panel uh, for the raw traces, and then on the bottom right, you can actually see eye movement, pause, 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 eye movement. Exhausting, right? How many eye moves do you need to make to make a simple reach? That's a lot of eye movement activity. And what's more interesting about that is when we actually analyze that spatially, so going from uh, point to point, the, the, uh, the stunning elevator music. Um, so if we actually analyze the spatial errors of those movements, so how close are you to the actual target for the eye and for the hand, now you're always going to have a little bit of problems with, you know, a little bit of accuracy for control. So we see a little bit of that in the, in the limb. So that's the middle plot and you're going to see in burgundy for the, for the actual, um, uh, for the controls, you have a little bit of uh, inaccuracy. So about a tenth uh, um, uh, inaccurate, if you will, uh, for the actual limb. And you see a little bit of uh, inaccuracy in the actual eye movement as well. Um, eye movements are classically hypometric. They always undershoot targets because they're so fast. In the stroke, on the less affected side, we see a jump up. So we ended up seeing bilateral effects in the less affected side, jumped up from control to that less affected side, meaning ipsy to the actual lesion. And then on the contralateral, the more affected side, what we ended up seeing was very uh, noticeable and substantial changes to the eye and also the hand. And these, the, the, these inaccuracies were correlated in terms of eye and hand. So in general, we saw a lot of increased work in order to complete very basic tasks. 
So just to kind of work, what's our working theory? Many people want to know kind of why, why we think this is happening for stroke patients. And I know I have this theme of kind of economy and workload, et cetera. But the central hypothesis is that this eye-hand coordination is impeded through interference between cognitive resources that are needed to control the timing for the eye movements paired with dysfunctional limb control. Now, it's a, a bit of a heavy statement, but basically, if I have an impaired limb post-stroke, and I don't have any vision problems, presumably my psychotic activity could match that impaired limb and the timing shouldn't be dysregulated, right? If I have a slow limb, I could still match eye movements that don't have any dysfunction. But what could happen in a different situation if I have incoordination is that I may still have decoupling or timing intervals that are also paired with that actual impaired limb, okay? So it's almost like a double whammy. Furthermore, those decoupling problems may actually be further impeding my recovery and may, may be actually making my motor impairment on the limb side worse and exacerbating the injury, okay? So we're very excited about these findings and the, the, the next question we always get is, this sounds fascinating, but what's, what's next? How do you actually deal with this? I mean, what's the, uh, you know, what's the next step? What's the 102 class for the 101 class? And what we're trying to work on right now ambitiously in the group is we're trying to think about what it means, the cognitive implications for this. And so we've done a couple of um, really nice experiments in terms of next steps. And this is actually cooking right now in NIH. The first is actually restructuring the actual eye-hand task into an eccentric viewing task. So we actually take the eye movement away. If the eye movement comes at a cost and there's extra work there, what if we actually just take that workload away? What does that mean? Well, guess what happens? If we actually look at the left side of this plot, and we restructure that, and we just use peripheral vision, no central vision, so you're not looking at the target, they actually improve about, by about 20% in terms of their spatial errors. So this is plot A on the left. And their directional errors improve um, by about 15 or 20% as well. Um, now what's interesting, what's nice is kind of a litmus test, and there's no practice effects here or anything like that. The controls are actually getting worse at this, as you would expect. Because we're telling them not to look at the target. We're basically saying, do not look at the target, use your peripheral vision. I mean, this is pretty striking, right? Next, what we said is, well, what if we change the way the work is done? What if we sequence it into steps, right? First look and then reach. First look and then reach. And so we've kind of restructured the way the work is done. And we've done that here. And actually, you can see there's even a more profound effect for the stroke patients if you look at the, the right side and plot A, where you can see, again, for the stroke on the right side of plot A, you can see substantial improvements between 25 and 30% for, uh, for those chronic stroke patients. This is a, a quick pilot done with six patients, which was a, a preliminary set of data which was used for our grant. And again, let me test again, practice effects. Controls are getting worse. You would think this isn't going to help them because naturally eye and hand should be coupled. Dr. Kier, I just gave you a shout out and a cameo in the presentation. You just missed it. Surely. Yes, no, you, should, you, should. you should definitely stay. It was all positive things, very positive, I swear. It's on the videotape. Formative. Yeah, exactly. So um, in any event, um, you can also see in the directional errors that there's substantial improvements in the directional errors, whereas the controls, again, um, end up having problems and, and end up getting worse. Okay, so directional errors get worse. So these are kind of nice checks and balances that we're actually, as, as we walk through the data. Okay, one last thing that we're doing um, with this initial work is we started to play with the idea of biofeedback, which is kind of a tried and true method in rehabilitation. But our fun twist on it in the lab is that instead of just doing um, biofeedback of the limb, we're doing biofeedback of the eye. So this is a bit strange, but you end up letting individuals do the eye-hand point-to-point reaches, visually guided function or visu uh, visually guided reaching, but what you do is we give you a sense of where your hand is relative to the target, and then we actually give you a spatial cue of your eye error. 
And we say it's important to pay attention to your eye. Your eye is part of the puzzle here. And what actually ends up happening is that not only do you see the spatial errors, which are on the right side and um, the right side of the plot here, not only do you see, um, so this is, um, uh, for those on the phone, um, it's a bit disoriented going between phone and in person here, so I apologize. But um, the, uh, the plot D, um, you can actually see nice improvements um, in the burgundy to the bright red uh, post-feedback. Um, but you can also see improvements in duration, meaning they're reaching more efficiently. So the, 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 the reaches are shorter in terms of total duration. But what we found, which was surprising, we did not expect to see, um, is that we also saw recoupling, meaning that decoupling interval where they were taking the eye in the hand and there was a break, um, or kind of a, they were fractionating the, the, those two actual tasks, they started to recouple them. So we were quite excited about that as well. And you can actually see that by the, um, uh, the dark blue. So if you go to plot A onset comparisons, you can actually see the eye onsets versus um, offsets. And you can see uh, pre and post. So you can actually see um, the dark blue to light blue, and then the burgundy to the bright red, and how the, those actual, um, the rectangle and, and um, square, if you will, are approaching one another. So the interval in between has now shrunk meaning they are, are recoupled compared to what you saw previously, meaning that decoupling interval between the dark blue and the burgundy was larger. Um, and we saw similar effects for directional error. I know I'm moving very quickly because there's a lot to cover, so if there's any questions, let me know. Some of this stuff I've already done in prior grand rounds, so I felt like I could kind of move quickly, but is there any if there's any questions, please, please stop me. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.